Hey guys, welcome to episode number two of the Shiver Bivy podcast. I'm your host, Michael Crawford, and today I'm going to tell you the story of a time that I got in a little over my head last winter. Here on the Shiver Bivy, the stories that make the cut are the ones that demonstrate an undying passion to put the human body and mind to the test in the wildest places that we can find. It's the stories that make us feel and understand our limits, and the stories where those limits are shattered and new ones are formed. This week, my excitement for the coming ski season has been cranked to 11. I've had an endless stream of videos running, and I'm sure I've been annoying the hell out of everyone with my inability to talk about anything else. Essentially, I don't think I've ever been so anxious to see the first snowfall. And I know I'm probably not alone on this one. Reports of the coming El Nino do not bode super well for the snowpack on the west coast of Canada. And I'm sure that, like me, you're on the edge of your seat, hoping that the skies will unload on us sooner rather than later. So in order to keep hopes high, I bring you a story from last winter. It was a winter where I made the transition from being a casual three-season outdoorsman to being an ambitious yet inexperienced all-season adventurer. I was essentially learning how to swim by throwing myself into the deep end. That winter, I went on more backcountry trips than I had been on the entire previous year, and I was slowly learning all the necessary skills and nuances. But I became so excited about it all that my ambition began to outweigh my expertise. (laughs) I began to lose sight of the fact that I was not yet the seasoned veteran that I one day hoped to be. And at the same time, the season was rapidly coming to a close. I remember walking home one Saturday after a day of skiing with my skis on my back and getting a ton of funny looks from people on the streets, wondering what I could possibly be doing with all of this ski gear. It was one of those really sunny days in the early spring when everything was starting to melt. The icicles were softening and dripping from the eaves and everybody's thoughts drifted towards summer. I had an intense, uneasy feeling stirring in my gut that day. For the first time in my life, my mind wasn't shifting with everyone else's into summer mode. Instead, I was clinging to the winter with all of my might, not wanting to let it slip away. In a climate that was welcoming spring with open arms, I desperately needed to find some snow. I had had my eyes set on Mount Washington for the last couple of years. I've always dreamed of running the presidential traverse, and Tuckerman's Ravine has always had a certain allure to it. On top of that, I had also always considered doing a winter ascent of Mount Washington, but I was always daunted by the logistics. In my mind, it seemed like a formidable trip where one might want to hire a guide to make sure it all went smoothly. But Claire and I had always tossed around the idea of just doing the research, renting the gear, and getting ourselves up that mountain. And at the time, Mount Washington fit my needs perfectly. At just under 6,300 feet, it was the tallest peak in the northeastern U.S., so I knew there would be snow. But there was still no risk of altitude sickness, and I knew there were routes with effectively zero crevasse danger. At the same time, the mountain holds the world record for wind speed at 231 miles an hour. So as someone who was looking for some snow late in the season, as well as an opportunity to push his limits, Mount Washington fit the bill. After talking about it for the umpteenth time, Claire and I finally agreed that we should just dive in 
headfirst and take a stab at the mountain on our own. We put countless hours of planning into this trip. On some level, I probably knew that we were getting in a little over our heads, and I figured that over-preparing would at least give us a certain edge if things really went south during the trip. Over the next two weeks, Claire and I ran around Montreal looking for places to boil crampons and ice axes. We had no idea if any of this stuff would be overkill, or if we would actually need it. We explained our trip idea to our friends Seb and Gabriel, who we knew from climbing a Shakti rock gym. I tried hard to emphasize the fact that we had no idea what we were doing on this trip, that it might be a really miserable time, and that we might be getting in a little over our heads. Needless to say, they were immediately sold, and we included them in our plans. Fast forward two weeks. It's Easter weekend. We were driving south of the border toward Pinkham Notch Visitor Center. The plan was to skin up to Hermit Lake shelters, spend the next couple of days trying to summit Washington, and hopefully get some skiing in Tuckman's Ravine if conditions were favorable. We had finally made it to the trailhead. Skis were on, food and gear was distributed in our packs, and spring was in full swing. The sun was shining bright and hot for the first time after hiding all winter long. After five minutes on the trail, we were all stripped down to our base layers. I thought to myself that if the weather stayed like this, we'd have a seamless summit of Washington and perfect conditions for skiing some corn in the ravine. After a few hours of nonstop hiking, the steep trail finally leveled out and Hojo's cabin came into view. There was a large wooden porch where we found skiers nursing beers and exchanging stories in the sun after a long day of perfect spring skiing. We were too late for any skiing of our own that day. We prepared dinner, took some photographs, and settled down for a cold winter's night sleeping in the backcountry. Just before going to sleep, I checked the most recent weather report in Hojo's cabin. In spite of the beautiful spring conditions that greeted us there that night, the report did not bode well for tomorrow. 30 centimeters of snow over the next 12 hours, temperatures recently rising and hovering around freezing, Winds reaching speeds of 60 miles per hour by midday. If we wanted any chance of summiting Washington, we would have to do it early. At 6 a.m. the next morning, I suddenly became aware of the cold air around me as the alarm sounded. Claire stirred beside me, and I could tell she had been cold and awake for some time. I was warm in my sleeping bag, but my nose, exposed to the air, was frigid. I lay staring at the shelter's frozen roof in the morning twilight, dreading the thought of getting up. I waited for someone else to move, and finally, Gabriel bravely got up and put on his boots. This gave me the courage to do the same, and soon enough, coffee was brewed, day packs were packed, and we trudged toward Lionhead Trail through 30 centimeters of overnight snowfall. From the quiet forest trail, it was hard to imagine the gale force winds that had been predicted. We climbed the steep footpath confidently, wondering what could possibly go wrong. Within minutes, we were plunging our ice axes and front pointing into snow and ice. 
Happy that we had opted for the crampons instead of the micro spikes. We hauled ourselves over rock steps and tree stumps. It seemed like there was nothing that could have dampened our spirits at the time. We had thrown ourselves into the deep end, but we did so with the tools for success. And, for the time being, we were treading water. After a couple of hours of bliss in the tree line, the barren landscape of the Alpine Garden opened up ahead to our right. And on the left of the trail, some 200 meters away, was a large group putting on layers. Signs that the winds would not be letting us off easy today. Taking shelter behind a massive rock feature known as the lion head, we added our own goggles and insulating layers to our kit. We suited up for the worst, without really knowing what that would be. I kept my compass at the ready, feeling a bit silly and overprepared. But when we pulled out from behind the shelter of the lion head, the world that greeted us was nothing like the one we left behind in the tree line. A thick frozen mist surrounded the footpath and the summit cone. Visibility was reduced to a few hundred meters. Beyond that was nothing but a homogeneous snowy mess. My inexperience shone through as the possibility of a whiteout failed to cross my mind. Wide-eyed and excited looks were exchanged as the four of us moved hastily forward. At this point, the majority of the actual climbing was behind us. The remainder of the trail would be fairly flat until we got within a quarter of a mile of the summit. If we could actually see what was in front of us, it would be a cakewalk. But with each step, visibility got worse. Our bearing was set on the summit. To our left, Tuckerman's Ravine lurked unseen behind the wall of whiteness, and gales rushed in from the Alpine Garden on our right threatening to blow us over the lip of the ravine. Once again, we saw the giant group ahead, plotting their next move. There seemed to be some confusion about where the next cairn in the trail was located. We knew it had to be somewhere to our left, but for 20 people to take a random guess would have been disastrous in these conditions. We discussed navigation with the group's guide, and then watched three climbers glissade down the mountain. They shouted directions at us over the wind, and after hearing less than half of what they had to say, we proceeded to walk in the direction from which they had come. In hindsight, it might have been safer to turn around right then and there. The visibility and temperature had dropped severely since we left the lion head, and showed no signs of improving. Another sign of danger was that my perception of time had become extremely skewed. I led the charge up what should have been the last bit of climbing before the summit. After what felt like five minutes, I heard Claire's voice shouting over the wind behind me. She'd been trying to get my attention for some time. She said we'd been climbing aimlessly for half an hour with no signs of trail or summit. And my watch told me that she was correct. We had a team meeting behind a boulder which offered little protection from the wind. Shouting barely audible words into each other's ears, we decided to check our watches and continue our bearing for another 15 minutes. If we found neither trail nor summit within that time limit, it was time to enter damage control mode and get back to safety. For me, those 15 minutes passed by in a blink of an eye. Again, I heard the faint sounds of someone trying to get my attention, and I glanced at my watch. Time was up. I crouched behind some mediocre wind protection, and another team meeting was called. We knew that we were southeast of the summit and north of the Alpine Garden Trail. 
A quick glance at our map told us that if we just walked east, we had no choice but to bump into either the Tuckerman Ravine Trail or the Lionhead Trail. Sure enough, Gabriel quickly spotted a cairn in that direction, and we were finally relocated on our map. It was time to find our way down this mountain. But, as the old climbing adage goes, when you get to the top, you're really only halfway there. Luckily, we saw another cairn downhill of the one we just found, and it was in the right direction. We headed down the mountain on this footpath, but each time we reached a new cairn, the next one became harder and harder to see. Just when we thought we were out of the woods, we'd lost the trail. According to where we had located ourselves on the map, the cairn should have been directly in our line of sight. I took a step forward and realized I could barely see my feet. We were caught in a whiteout. Probing the snow in front of me with my ice axe, I took cautious steps forward. At this point, in the absence of sight lines, all we could do was follow our bearing and hope we were right. We had located ourselves on the eastern snowfields of Mount Washington, a spot well known for small slides in conditions exactly like these. Our predicament was grim. On top of not being able to see, we had the added hazards of the potential for a small avalanche as well as the danger of the ravine dropping off some unknown distance from our current location. Instead of walking diagonally downward toward the trail to our shelters, we decided to walk along the contour lines of the summit cone until we were back in line with the trail. If we had just walked diagonally down the mountain, we would have risked accidentally traveling down too low and winding up directly in the ravine. The only disadvantage to this tactic was that at some point, we would have to collectively decide that we had gone far enough so that we were actually beyond the ravine and we could make it safely back to the trail if we headed down. As we trudged through the slabby, thigh-deep snow, we had countless team meetings, each time wondering if we had passed the ravine and could head down safely. Finally, Gabriel made the right call. Comparing the direction we were facing with the direction that the slope was descending, we decided we must be well beyond the ravine by this time. There was really no way to be 100% sure that we weren't walking blindly over the lip to a thousand foot slide down to the floor of the ravine. But Gabriel's logic was sound. We walked down the mountain, and after a mere five minutes of blindly walking through snow and causing a bunch of mini avalanches along the way, the skies began to clear just enough for the sun to poke through, and at last a cairn was found. A quick look at the map told us we'd found the Alpine Garden Trail. After following the well-marked trail for no more than five minutes, we found ourselves right back on the Lionhead Trail, not far from where we had left the group of 20. Finally, we saw a sign that told us we were out of the woods. It was an old U.S. Forest Service sign pointing to the left for the summit of Mount Washington and to the right for Lionhead Trail. We had seen this sign before, and it told us we were home free. Celebrating, Gabriel whipped out his camera and took some awesome candid photos of us with nervous smiles on our faces and giant beards of ice dangling from our balaclavas. We were an absolute mess. After glissading down the majority of the trail, we made it back to Hojo's, unscathed, but with new experiences under our belts. 
The Abbey Bulletin posted that day told us the only skiing to be had would be in the tree line. But that didn't matter. We were beat. We would spend the rest of the day just trying to stay warm, saving the skiing for tomorrow. But skiing the following day was off limits as well. The avalanche report was still extreme. We decided to pack up and have one last ski down through the trees back to the car and call it an unorthodox victory. The weather down at the parking lot made it difficult to believe that we were in a storm less than 24 hours ago. We dried off in the spring sun, changed clothes, and headed back to Montreal. I watched feverishly as the cone of Mount Washington drifted away behind us. All around us was beautiful sunny spring weather, and on Mount Washington, a dark ominous cloud loomed, turning it into the treacherous place that it truly was. Two days ago, we had set out from Montreal with two concrete goals. The first was to summit Mount Washington. The second was to get some fun corn skiing in the ravine. We accomplished neither of those goals. But in the end, I think we gained more from the experience than we would have if the trip had gone completely as planned. I'm not sure how my climbing partners feel about this, but in hindsight, I'm happy we got the whiteout experience. I'm happy we got to feel the rush of being well out of my comfort zone, and I'm happy that we're able to just throw ourselves into that situation and come out alive. In the end, I found the reach of my limits at the time, and I went just far enough past them for a lesson in humility, and I had fun doing it. And that's what I think this is all about, just taking the plunge into the deep end when perceived risk might be high, but actual risk is in fact low compared to other potential pursuits, and learning from the experience. Well guys, there you have it. Episode number two of the Shiver Bivy podcast. Luckily, this time we were able to avoid an actual Shiver Bivy, but hopefully not in the future. Music today comes from a solo artist from Montreal by the name of Ollie North, also known as Jack Deming. You can find all of his music, as well as links to his other projects, at ollienorthmusic.bandcamp.com. As always, a big thanks goes out to Claire Golan Brown for making the awesome artwork for this show. See more of her artwork at clairegolanbrown.com. Finally, a big thank you goes out to Shaki Rockshin for inspiring friendships and adventures like these. As always, I'd love to hear any feedback that you guys have about these podcasts. These podcasts are fun, but they're also an experimental learning process for me. You can let me know what you think by leaving me a comment on Instagram or by heading over to our website, theshiverbivy.com, and sending me an email from there. <laughs>